Welcome to Conference Coverage, presented by ReachMD on XM Radio and powered by Health Day. Featuring the latest research findings presented at Digestive Disease Week 2011, held from May 7th to the 10th in Chicago. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Sue Berg. This year's meeting attracted approximately 15,000 participants from around the world, including researchers and academics in the fields of gastroenterology, hepatology, endoscopy, and gastrointestinal surgery. The conference featured approximately 5,000 abstracts and hundreds of lectures, highlighting recent advances in gastroenterology research, medicine, and technology. Increasing numbers of older patients are undergoing bariatric surgery, and with proper patient selection, the procedure is safe and effective. That was the finding of Dr. Robert B. Dorman of the University of Minnesota and his colleagues. The investigators evaluated over 48,000 patients who underwent bariatric procedures between 2005 and 2009. They found the percentage of older patients undergoing bariatric surgery had increased from 1.92% in 2005 to 4.77% in 2009, representing a 60% increase in bariatric surgery among patients older than 65. Out of 48,378 patients, there were only 72 deaths within 30 days of surgery, and just eight of those occurred in patients over the age of 65. Previous studies had linked age to increased morbidity and mortality following bariatric surgery, but they included only Medicare patients, adjusted for limited risk factors, and omitted laparoscopic procedures. This new study, which utilized a larger national database, found that age became less significant when issues such as body mass index and medical conditions such as cardiovascular disease and diabetes were considered. Yet people 65 and older do face increased risks. Based on a five-year analysis of the data, this age group did have longer hospitalizations. The researchers expect the elderly population to continue to increase, approaching 70 million by 2030, with a resulting rise in the prevalence of obesity within this population. This study may provide a framework to assess their operative risk within the first 30 days following bariatric surgery. Low-intensity exercise once a week is associated with a lower risk of colon polyps and adenomas. That's the finding of investigators from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Researchers evaluated a multi-ethnic population of 982 middle-aged patients. Polyps were identified in 33% of those who exercised less than an hour weekly, compared with only 25% of patients who exercised an hour or more every week. A subset analysis revealed that the findings were especially significant among patients with a body mass index greater than or equal to 25. Overall, across multiple ethnicities, at least one hour of weekly light exercise, such as walking, was associated with a lower prevalence of polyps in the colon, as compared with those who exercised less or not at all. Previous research has indicated that physical activity may be a protective factor in the development of colon cancer, but studies have not looked at its impact within different racial and ethnic groups. Intestinal decontamination with rifaximin is an effective approach to prevent spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, or SBP, and improve transplant-free survival in patients with liver cirrhosis and ascites. That was the finding of researchers from the Cleveland Clinic, who stratified over 400 patients with liver cirrhosis and ascites into two groups by the use of rifaximin. Ascites is a common complication of liver cirrhosis, in which accumulated fluid in the abdominal cavity creates a favorable environment for growth of bacteria causing SBP. Investigators sought to determine whether rifaximin 
prevents infection of the abdominal fluid in patients with advanced liver cirrhosis. Patients with liver cirrhosis were evaluated at the hepatology clinic between 2003 and 2008 and were divided into two groups by the use of rifaximin. 404 patients were included, of whom 49, or 12 percent, received rifaximin therapy and were followed for an average of eight months. The investigators found that 89% of patients who received rifaximin remained SBP-free, as compared with only 68% who did not receive the drug. They also found that rifaximin was associated with a greater transplant-free survival benefit. The investigators say this study shows that rifaximin is not only effective in the primary prophylaxis of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, but also provides survival benefit for patients with advanced cirrhosis and ascites. The risk of new or missed colorectal cancers, or CRCs, is substantially higher after flexible sigmoidoscopy than colonoscopy in older adults. Researchers from the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, reviewed the National Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results Medicare database for patients age 67 and older who were diagnosed with CRC in the left colon between 1998 and 2005. Of the more than 25,000 individuals who had undergone a lower endoscopy, 849 were diagnosed with CRC 6 to 36 months after the procedure. The data revealed that in these individuals, the rate of new or missed left-sided CRCs after flexible sigmoidoscopy was 12%, about four times the rate after colonoscopy. The investigators say that despite its imperfections, colonoscopy remains the gold standard for detecting or preventing colorectal cancer, and that older patients should undergo colonoscopy instead of flexible sigmoidoscopy. A self-propelling capsule endoscope, or SPCE, allows for observation of the colon from the anus and may be an effective alternative approach for colonoscopy in the future. In the first trial of an actively propelled video capsule in the human colon, investigators from Osaka Medical College in Japan used a remote control and a real-time monitoring system to operate the SPCE on a test patient. They obtained endoscopic images of the colon and monitored movements of the SPCE with the colonoscope. The researchers found that the trial demonstrated feasibility to control and maneuver the capsule in the colon of a human who is awake. The SPCE moved smoothly through the colon, was removed from the anus easily and safely, and provided clear images. The investigators expect this may lead to the development of a commercial system to propel the capsule in a way that lets doctors visualize the entire gastrointestinal tract from esophagus to anus. For patients with irritable bowel syndrome, mindfulness meditation is associated with improvements in bowel symptom severity, health-related quality of life, and IBS-related psychological symptoms. An investigation led by Dr. Susan Gaylord, director of the University of North Carolina's Program on Integrative Medicine, sought to evaluate mindfulness meditation as a therapeutic technique for IBS. Previous studies have shown mindfulness meditation to improve symptoms in other chronic conditions, such as fibromyalgia and depression. The new study, comparing whether mindfulness meditation improves irritable bowel syndrome severity and psychological symptoms more effectively than support group therapy, showed that symptom severity was reduced four times more in the meditation group after an eight-week period. Seventy-five female patients between the ages of 19 and 71 were randomized to participate in either mindfulness meditation training or a support group offering mutual support for IBS and life problems.
Each eight-week course held weekly sessions plus a half-day retreat. Participants' ratings of the credibility of their assigned intervention as therapy for IBS, measured after the first group session, were no different between the two treatment groups. At the end of the eight-week session, overall IBS severity was reduced substantially more in the meditation group when compared to the support group, 26.4% versus 6.2% respectively. At the three-month follow-up period, this difference improved even further in favor of the meditation group, with a 38.2% reduction in severity of IBS symptoms, compared with just an 11.8% reduction in support group patients. Changes in quality of life impairment, visceral anxiety, and psychological distress were not significantly different immediately after the eight-week period. However, all were significantly improved at the three-month follow-up period in the meditation group. Investigators plan next to research how this method causes improvements in IBS symptoms. Individuals who undergo gastric bypass surgery are at increased risk of undergoing treatment for alcohol abuse postoperatively. That's the conclusion of a study presented by Dr. Magdalena Ostlund and colleagues of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. They evaluated more than 12,000 patients who underwent primary bariatric surgery between 1980 and 2006. Compared to the general population, bariatric patients had significantly higher rates of inpatient treatment for psychiatric disease before and after surgery. The investigators also found that gastric bypass surgery was associated with a two-fold increased risk of inpatient treatment for alcohol abuse compared with restrictive surgery. The authors recommend that patients undergoing gastric bypass should be carefully counseled on alcohol consumption and that caregivers should be aware of the greater potential for alcohol abuse after surgery so treatment can be sought if problems arise. Dietary fiber intake, physical activity, and red meat and fat intake do not appear to be associated with diverticulosis, according to research presented by Dr. Ann Peary and colleagues at the University of North Carolina. Researchers evaluated data from three colonoscopy-based studies conducted between 1998 and 2010 at the University of North Carolina hospitals to determine whether dietary fiber, fat, red meat, or sedentary behavior were associated with diverticulosis confirmed by colonoscopy. The investigators evaluated data from over 2,000 participants aged 30 to 80, including 968 diverticulosis cases and 1,410 diverticula-free controls. After adjustment for age, race, and body mass index, the investigators found no association between total fiber, fat intake, red meat intake, or physical activity, and diverticulosis. Based on these findings, the authors recommend reconsidering previous hypotheses regarding diverticulosis risk factors and diet recommendations to patients. U.S. screening colonoscopy rates appear to be lower during times of economic recession. That was the finding of Dr. Spencer Dorn and colleagues of the University of North Carolina, who used claims-based algorithms to identify screening colonoscopies from approximately 100 health plans. They then determined monthly rates and median out-of-pocket costs for such procedures performed on 50- to 64-year-old beneficiaries. Their monitoring period before the recession was between January 2005 and November 2007, while the recession time frame was December 2007 through June 2009. The investigators found that every month during the recession, there were 68.9 fewer colonoscopies per 1 million insured individuals 
that would have been expected based on pre-recession trends, which translated into over 516,000 fewer colonoscopies performed over the 18-month recession period. The researchers also found that individuals with high out-of-pocket procedure costs experienced lower screening rates over time, with a greater decrease in screening rates during the recession. Because members of health plans with high colonoscopy out-of-pocket costs were less likely to undergo colonoscopy at all time points, especially during the recession, investigators conclude this supports policies to reduce patient cost-sharing for colonoscopy. Finally, gastrointestinal problems associated with suspected lactose intolerance may not be tied to lactose malabsorption, but rather to a psychological disorder. In a recent study by investigators from Milan, Italy, 102 patients with suspected lactose intolerance were evaluated with a 15-gram lactose hydrogen breath test to determine whether symptoms were due to lactose malabsorption or to a somatoform disorder. Lactose malabsorption was diagnosed in 33% of patients, and lactose intolerance was diagnosed in 29% of patients. But the investigators found that an altered level of somatization was significantly associated with the perception of lactose intolerance symptoms after the ingestion of 15 grams of lactose. 62% of patients with somatization reported the presence of at least three lactose intolerance symptoms, compared to 20% of patients without somatization. The researchers claim this suggests that symptoms of lactose intolerance could reveal a somatoform disorder and that counterproductive behaviors such as diets excluding milk products should be discouraged. This conference coverage from Digestive Disease Week 2011, held from May 7th to the 10th in Chicago, has been a presentation of ReachMD on XM Satellite Radio and by live stream at ReachMD.com and powered by Health Day. Hi, I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, co-host of Partners in Practice, inviting you to visit our online audio library at reachmd.com, where you can access thousands of free on-demand podcasts. And here's a sample of one. Do you think that changing from assistant to associate would actually help the patients better understand the care they're getting and help PAs integrate more seamlessly through the healthcare system, especially with the pending national healthcare plans? Well, I think basically what you're asking is, do you think that the present name assistant is confusing to the public? And as a response then, I'd say a thousand times yes. As long as they are med- to hear more of this interview and other interviews from the series Partners in Practice, visit ReachMD.com on our website. You can also hear other programs hosted by me, PA, Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and thousands more on-demand podcasts from our library of other programs on ReachMD Radio XM 160. Thanks for listening.